0: Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim carrick Burtwell, co-founder and CEO of Changeboard. Today, I'm joined by Chris Jones, CEO of the City and Guilds Group. The group, which includes City Guilds, ILM, Kineo, the Oxford Group, DigitalMe, E3 Learning and Gen2 exists to help people, organisations and economies develop their skills for growth and sets the standards for corporate learning, on-the-job development and skills recognition. In his role, Chris plays a prominent part in driving the national and international skills agenda, reflecting his personal experience in vocational education. In this podcast, I ask Chris about how we can address the current skills gap we're experiencing in the UK, the impact of technology on our working lives and how we can make school leavers and young people more employable. Chris, thanks for taking the time. Very nice to see you again. Good to see you too. Um, it's, I, I'm conscious doing a bit of research for this, that uh, you've been involved in learning education skills for most of your career, and you're coming up to a, a decade at City and Guilds. Yes, 10 uh, years in March. Indeed. Um, and just interested to, to hear how your roles evolved over that period of time and, and what your kind of current focus is in terms of your role. Well, I
1: think, um, yes, 10 years at Sitting Guilds. I mean, it's sort of um, uh, an interesting milestone in, in the organization. It's a chunk of time. And, and, and I suppose my own personally as well. You know, I, I came into this organization having spent the majority, actually, my career in a, a publishing and business information background at Reed Elsevier and, and, and Pearson. Um, but my latter sort of four years with Reed Elsevier was running their non-U.S. education business, primarily a secondary... Um, K-12, publishing business operating in the UK and international markets. But there we saw the growth and the emerging growth of vocational education and the increasing importance being placed around vocational education, technical education, building better pathways into employment. Um, And as a consequence of exiting a business into Pearson, I had an opportunity to do something different. Um, And so I chose the opportunity of coming here as as Director General, City and Guilds, Uh, back in March 2008. And I suppose what I struck by was an organization with a fantastic brand, fantastic heritage, Um, but actually almost sort of not realizing what its full potential could be. And, you know, through the course of the 10 years, we've we've led a business through quite a significant amount of change and growth. Mm -hmm. Um, We continue to be a brand and market leader in technical education, specifically in terms of vocational awarding, the Sydney Hills brand, well-known, well-loved. Um, well-respected um, across a number of markets, specifically um, in the UK, though. But we're now a much wider business. We have a large, growing corporate learning business hmm. that is supporting the wider use of e-learning and learning technologies. Um, we have an executive development business, top team development, and um, executive coaching. And most recently, we've just moved back into technical training with the acquisition of a business called Gen 2 So a lot of change. Um, but it's an organization with a very clear purpose. And what's that purpose? Very simple. Um, Everything we do is to help people into a job, help them on the job, and help them progress onto the next job. And whether or not that is supporting a young person uh, with the right qualification, with the right skills and competencies to move into an apprenticeship, Um, and to start their career, or indeed whether or not we're working with a senior executive who has to lead a a significant culture change program, perhaps across a number of geographies. You know, we're helping them do that. We're helping support the skill development, the knowledge development. We're helping them apply skill and knowledge in a way that benefits them as individuals and the organization as a whole. And that's very much sort of the purpose, but we do it on two fronts. We do it to make money commercially successful, um, but we are fundamentally a charity. And so equally as important to us is our bursary programs, our Skills Development Fund, our Princess Royal Training Awards programs, where we deploy our surpluses into other ways to help organizations scale up interventions to help people into jobs and further their careers.
0: And where, where do you see the biggest demands for upskilling? I mean, <laughs> the, the world is changing very fast. This changes almost in every possible direction. Yeah. So on the on the demand side, <coughs> where are you seeing the biggest pressures um, for you as a business to have to focus on?
1: Well, I, look, I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, if I look at it in the context of sort of skill gaps, you know, which have been you know widely reported across many sectors, and you know, and one would say the consequences of Brexit are just putting some of that into even greater stark relief. You know, particularly in those areas where there was a relatively high dependency on, on labor that had come in through Europe, whether that's construction, hospitality, catering, or indeed the land-based sectors. So they all have some fairly significant issues to address. Um, but you've then clearly got the much wider issue of the demand that we're seeing across the STEM agenda. Um, you know, and if you talk to businesses today, particularly those operating in a, in a STEM environment, an engineering, manufacturing environment, you know, they keep coming back to... You know, we don't have enough technicians, you know, so, you know, the argument of let's increase the degree of um, automation is all well and good. But what often follows that is, but actually I still need the technicians capable of maintaining the automation that I intend to put into my factories or my operating environment. So STEM, I think, is a significant area. Um, You know, it's one that not only affects us um, in terms of where we're focusing our business interests, I referenced earlier, we acquired Gen Two, mm. um, large technical training business, focused a little bit into the nuclear sector, but actually across broader advanced manufacturing. And there, you can see the demand from business looking at the issues of creating access to employment, so the apprenticeship programs. But increasingly, how do we retrain and reskill um, the agenda?
0: And given you, given you touch on apprenticeships, how how is Business generally responding to uh, the introduction of the apprenticeship levy. Are they? We were talking about it earlier, but are they developing <laughs> a clear strategy in terms of what they're going to do to adapt and utilise this?
1: Look, I think it's a pretty mixed picture at the moment. Um, it, it's not just simply the introduction of the levy that I think businesses have had to contend with. You know, they've also had to deal with you know the introduction of sort of the minimum wage. They've had to address the issues of auto enrolment. And so for some parts of the industry, they've had a number of different dimensions that have all come at the same time, which have inevitably created some pressures. But you've also got a sort of system, and particularly around the apprenticeships, where in addition to the levy, you know, we've also got the introduction of a fundamentally an employer-led system, the mm-hmm. introduction of new standards. Um, and, and I think, you know, that is taking time for the system to bed in for employers to begin to understand how they can best deploy the levy, um, what they can spend their money on and what they can't. You know, we're best to focus their levy. So, you know, as we've recently seen, you know, the apprenticeship starts, numbers are down. Frankly, I'm not surprised by that. Um, employers have two years to recover that levy. And so I think there are some who are stepping back and thinking quite strategically about it. mm mm-hmm. Is this about replacing my graduate entry program? Um, It might be, but I can replace that with essentially a degree apprenticeship. You know, is this more about upskilling? I need to do that in program management or I need to do that in leadership and management. Um, And therefore, it's not a simple fix of, I've got a levy, I'm going to spend it.
0: And are you seeing real engagement from employers or put another way, a determination to utilize it, albeit maybe in a more considered way? Or are you sensing that, A significant number of employers are actually just thinking, do you know what,
1: we're prepared to sacrifice that. Well, I think we've seen recently, The CIPD survey has come out and said there's a large proportion that are going to write that off as a tax. Mm. Um, Now, are they going to take that view over the long term or is that just their view at this moment in time? Time will tell. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, what I'm encouraged about is seeing employers who typically have not been large-scale adopters of apprenticeship programs genuinely beginning to think about how the levy can better support their wider workforce development needs and and that i think is a fantastic opportunity and you know over time you know i'm sure that we will begin to evidence you know great examples of businesses that were new to the levy new to apprenticeships and who have materially benefited from it so you know Yes, we should be concerned at where the starts are, but I don't think we should be surprised. Um, I'd be much more interested to see where we are in about another six or seven months' time. Indeed. Um, because we can see momentum building from the conversations that we as an organisation are having with employees.
0: That's encouraging. I mean, you, you, you touched on, Chris, um, uh, that uh, City Girls and City Girls Group, indeed, it's a, it's a global business now. Yes. Um, are there lessons that can be learnt, uh on the skills or indeed the apprenticeship levy from from other parts of the world?
1: (laughs) I have to say, I mean, it's one of those most interesting sort of aspects, I suppose, of the last 10 years here, Um, that whether or not it's the apprenticeship sort of um, environment, or whether or not it's the philosophy and the systems that surround technical education in its broadest sense, from 14 through to 19 and beyond. I suppose one of the things that I think about is we can look at Germany, we can look at the Swiss system, we can look at the Dutch system, we can look at the Finnish system, Um, and then we always compare and contrast it to our own and say, well, Wales is a little bit deficient, isn't it? I actually don't believe it's fundamentally about the systems. Um, You know, the German system was fundamentally based on our model. You know, they adopted it at the end of the Second World War. The issue that I think we face here is the instability that we've had around policy and technical education. You know, over 30 years, 65 secretaries of state responsible for skills. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take the last five or six years, we've had almost as many ministers responsible for skills. And I think, you know, the reality here is we need to have stability in the system over the long term.
0: Any prospects of that? I mean, you, you've got a foot in the policy camp. You're well-connected um, into government. Uh, I mean, is there any movement or discussion around, for example, either an education or a skills uh, commission to to maybe mirror an infrastructure commission where things are planned outside the uh, political cycle, um, cross-party support, better funding over a long period of time, makes complete sense on the face of it.
1: Well, it does. And and we we published uh, back in 2010 um, a study, Sense and Instability. Uh, which was a retrospective view of what has happened in terms of educational policy. Um, And when you look at that and the recommendations, one of those recommendations was, let's take specifically the technical education agenda out of sort of, you know, government oversight um, and set up something that was genuinely independent and could look on the long-term, be cross-party, bring business to the table. And I suppose to any extent, you'd say, well, that's what the UK Commission for Employment and Skills was all about. Um, and I think, you know, personally, it was at a point when actually it was beginning to have real traction with employers. You know, there was a genuine and I think considered belief that they were setting a policy agenda, they had an employer, you know, perspective at their heart, and that, that was going to be good for the long term. So I think it's disappointing to see that that sadly it came to an end. Do I think we'll get that? Um, I'm an optimist so perhaps (laughs) if we keep pushing hard enough we'll get there in the end. Being a realist though probably not education is too much of a political football and I think it's going to remain that way for some time to come.
0: Yeah moving on to uh, technology Uh, impact of technology on workplace education skills market I know in, in uh, previous conversations, um, you know, you've been an, an acquisitive business and a lot of the businesses you've acquired have had a, a yep. technology focus. Um, how, how are you seeing uh, that aspect of, of this change playing out in in the education and skills landscape, the impact of technology?
1: I think it's interesting in education. Um, you know, if, I, if I look back to my days before sitting Gills actually, when you had the wonders of um, electronic learning credits, um, which was a... A government stimulus to support actually schools in to invest more into uh, digital resources. You know, a considerable amount of money, um, both in terms of software and hardware. And I think what was interesting is that probably in reality, people would view that as being less successful than people would have thought. Um, and part of that was about culture, part of that was environment, part of that was about the readiness, I think, of teachers to use technology, there was a natural fear of it. I think we've come on quite a long way, and I think in schools and colleges today, universities, you're seeing a much wider adoption of technology to deploy learning and and to allow students to access learning. I think if we look into the corporate world, um, I I think we're at a really interesting point in time. You know, um, e-learning has moved from sort of that simple, well, here's some compliance-based training, it's easy to deliver it at scale, It's a relatively sort of point-and-click exercise. We move from one screen to another screen. um, And we'll deal with our traditional training in a more face-to-face environment. Well, clearly, you know, we we operate in a very different landscape now. You know, globalization of business, you know, um, more distributed workforces, um, the workforce made up of a much different balance of full-time employees and and perhaps part-time employees and flexible working. So you're seeing technology being deployed differently now. Um, But you've also got this issue of how do you help people keep pace with the learning that they most need at the time they most need it? Um, So we're seeing a significant increase in the way in which learning is being targeted to specific individual needs. um, But delivering that learning in in much more uh, bite-sized formats, you know, mobile clearly becoming an ever greater Um, sort of tool for people to access that learning um, and doing it in a way that is much more engaging for the individuals consuming that knowledge and some of that is structured and some of that is less structured Um, but you're seeing this shift of learning being placed very much more into the hands of the individual and I think that's a good thing and I think businesses that are doing that well are responding to the issue that the ability for your workforce to learn and relearn is going to be really important in the future. Mm. You know, there is such a significant amount of retraining that has to happen over the next 20, 30 years that you have to create the environment for the workforce, no matter who they are, where they are in the organization, to naturally want to be able to learn, relearn and develop their skills.
0: And our businesses... Uh, understanding that that is a sort of a long-term strategy to sort of, if you like, evenly distribute access to uh, new skills, digital skills, lifelong learning. Is that a small number of businesses that are the sort of you know, the elite or the progressives, or is that becoming more evenly spread?
1: I, look, I, I don't think it's it's evenly spread yet. Um, you know, I think that there will always, and indeed are some, some, some great examples of organizations that are thinking that way, that are deploying the technology in that way. Um, what I think is becoming increasingly more pressing for organizations is the recognition that as automation increases, um, it is dramatically affecting the type of roles that they need to have within their workforce. Um, but the reality is you can't just sort of end up Reducing the overall workforce, you've got to think a little bit harder about well, what are you going to do with the people that you're potentially having to now redeploy? Um, You know, what have I got to think about in terms of the type of skills and capabilities I'm going to need in the future? So, one of the biggest issues for me at the moment is how do we create an environment where businesses begin to recognize that, you know, and McKinsey has said it recently, you know, we're probably going to have to train or retrain around about 14% of the global workforce. Now that has not been done before. It is an unprecedented level of retraining. Part of that, a lot of that is driven by the increased level of automation. Now what I think is interesting is that we see a much greater willingness of employees, whether it's high level skills or low level skills, to engage in understanding how automation is going to change the nature of their role and to be able to reskill. I think what's a little bit more worrisome is, and Accenture has suggested this recently, that only 3% of chief executives are prepared to significantly address the retraining agenda by increasing the level of training provision. And that, I think, is a real concern. And
0: is is it um, sitting with chief execs, from your perspective, is this superseded decisions by HR functions, L&D functions. Is it a kind of exec board, a, a sort of long term investment strategy that's I, uh, needs to be adopted?
1: I, I think the the changing nature of the workplace and the changing nature of the workforce, you know, has to be one of the most important issues sitting on the, the board agendas. Um, because Are you seeing that? Um, not consistently. Um, you know, as as we talk to businesses and begin to, you know, engage with them about where do you believe your workforce is going to move to over the course of the next 15, 20 years? You know, and there isn't a great deal of evidence to see people really beginning to project out 15, 20 years and thinking hard about what skills they're going to have to develop, what culture they're going to have to develop to address that. Um You know and I think there is a a level of awareness that we as an organisation have to continue to bring to bear on that Um, because the evidence is if you try to address retraining, significant retraining when workers have been exited out of the workplace they are less likely to return to roles or levels of earnings that they would have been in prior to leaving the workplace. And that, I think, is an issue. Mm. That is an issue. Mm. Um, So I think a responsibility for business going forward is going to be able to sort of address how do we retrain? How do we reskill? You know, how do we create the environment for everyone to relearn the skills that they will need to have in order to sort of continue to move forward with the business? And I think it's quite interesting. I mean, Thomas Friedman... um, in a book, you know, Thank You For Being Late, gave a really interesting case study um, of, of, of a large dairy farm actually in upstate New York. But the fundamentals here was that, you know, um, you're no longer milking cows because that's actually entirely all automated. So the role of the dairy manager actually is one that is fundamentally about you're a nutritionist, so you're thinking about how I maximize the productivity of my, um, my herd. And it does, I think, reflect many other roles. You know, jobs are being pulled up mm. at a high level. They're being pulled apart through automation. You know, they're being pulled down, and in many cases made obsolete. Um, and that sort of phenomena is going to continue to play out. And we have to address that. But it's happened before. I mean, it's interesting, you know. The, uh, was it the Luddite protests at the beginning of the 19th century yeah. suggested the same thing, and, well, we seem to be okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's going to be fundamentally. This is that technology is stealing jobs. It's not. It's going to create new jobs.
0: But technology has always created huge disruptions. So you, you mentioned the Luddites. You could argue that the, the sort of the forces of globalization uh, and technological advances have left, you know, or you know, uh, disempowered a lot of people. Whether mm. you look at you know, Rust Belt in America, leading to Trump, yep. you lead to. People that don't feel they've got a voice um, or hope, indeed, in the UK, leading to arguably Brexit. Um, I mean, it, it leads me to kind of think that I was having a conversation recently with um, Matthew Taylor, and he was making a, a quite strident case for the fact that the UK is a low skill economy. Mm. And he was saying that there hasn't ever been enough focus on people that are not going through the higher education routes. And actually, these disruptions provide potentially a very large opportunity uh, for employers, for businesses um, and indeed governments to look at the long term productivity of Britain. Mm. Um, I mean, is that something that as a business you guys are kind of focusing on?
1: What in terms of how we serve our, our y- customers?
0: Yeah, in terms of broadly speaking, this sort of there is a there is a, there seems to be much more of a focus now on the sort of vocational routes. Oh, of course. Um, but into ter- are you are you feeling that as a sort of a, a switch that there is a groundswell for taking it more seriously?
1: Oh yes, no, I, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, I think that there is, you know, a, a very clear and growing recognition from 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 business and from business leaders that you know we have to increase the, um, the prestige around technical education. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is we come back to the issues around the apprenticeship levy and the apprenticeship movement in general is, is, is reinforcing the fact that there are clearer pathways um, and that actually the technical education route does allow you to you know, create real momentum in the future capability and capacity of our workforce in, in, in the future and you're beginning to see employers wanting to take you know I think more of a a, a stage to address that issue um, you know you've seen that through the work done by Jürgen Meyer on sort of you know issues around the fourth industrial revolution and, and yep. what's the workplace going to look like to a certain extent, we can see some of that coming through in some of the work the National Infrastructure Commission is doing, saying, well, if we're going to be moving in that direction, we really do need to be focusing much more in terms of the technical education system and how we ensure that we've got the sort of capability and skill base coming through the organisations in the future.
0: And are you seeing organisations prepared to collaborate? Um, so whether it's cross-sector, you know, focused on if you like, upskilling the the supply side um, rather than just looking at we need these particular skills now or in the yeah. next two or three years. Actually, we're prepared to invest collectively because we need these over a longer term.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, clearly that is happening. Um, and, you know, one of the things that industry has been sort of pushing harder on is the ability to be able to utilise if we come back to the levy but more widely, but specifically the levy at the moment, the utilisation of that across the supply chain. But if you look at the issue of collaboration, I mean, I think one of the fantastic examples of that is the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre up in Sheffield, mm. you know, where you've got university, you've got technical education and apprenticeship provision sitting alongside the likes of Boeing, BAE, Rolls-Royce and others, where you know, you're getting supply chain collaboration and innovation You're getting engagement with higher education and core technical skill development. Um, And that, I think, is a model that needs to be replicated, Um, you know, and to a large extent. You know, I think that's going to be an interesting facet of where we see some issues around the devolution agenda, you know, how we see responsibility for skills perhaps being place a little bit more firmly into some of the larger sort of areas, such as, you know, Manchester and West Midlands with Andy Burnham, Andy street, Mm. because I think they can see at a more local level, the opportunity of where they can create that collaboration connection. Um, I was at a really great training provider up in Coventry. They work in the process manufacturing sector. Um, but you could see exactly how they were integrating themselves into the supply chain. You know, um, of both some of the dairy sector the food sector um, but you could see those um, um, sectors beginning to look quite hard at how do we raise the bar collectively how do we begin to mobilize more resource provision how do we create uh, a more standardized approach so that we as a sector benefit as a whole mm. and that sort of level of collaboration I think is critically important going forward and mm. that we don't see a fragmentation of skill development where one organisation says well that's what you think a technician looks like but actually I have a completely different view yeah because the reality is I think there's an awful lot of similarity where the differences are well that is perhaps left for an organisation to deal with themselves
0: and and just picking up that point of 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 businesses getting much more involved in the wider supply chain um, I mean obviously that that there's a natural extension to include the education system mm-hmm. um, and uh, we've talked about that and, and lots of employers and it's very well documented and researched uh, the mismatch between the, the employability skills coming yeah. through the education system you know young people um, and their preparedness to get into the workplace yes um, what are your thoughts on that it's a big yeah, I, question.
1: No, it is a big question, isn't it? And and I think it's it, 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 it's, it's interesting. And it sort of comes back a little bit to some of the earlier points we discussed around some of those areas of real big sort of issues of, of skill gaps. And a lot of those, whether you talk about life skills, essential skills, you know, um, those issues around, you know, judgment, um, resilience, um, you know, leadership. um, Maths, English, and ICT, perhaps as, as a given. And I think what's really interesting there is that you know there is a, a responsibility I think on business to ensure that they are engaging wherever they can with the education system, and that's twofold. I think it's one to create opportunities to inspire young people on the sort of opportunities that are available to them and what actually does some of these industries look like and feel like. Yeah. Um, but equally. It is a way for businesses to begin to shape the sort of skills that they genuinely believe that they will need in the future. And I think when you look at sort of this issue of employment, industry, and education, um, we need to make sure that more of the primary and secondary school curriculum is beginning to reflect the sort of skill base, the sort of characteristics that we want people to have in the future, I think it's interesting. Um, quite a lot of my family, on my my wife's side, are teachers. My mother-in-law is a teacher, um, and it's interesting. You talk to them; they they talk about English and maths, you know, literacy and numeracy. It's in their DNA. If I then sort of talk to them about, but what are you doing to develop resilience? What are you doing to develop, you know, problem solving skills? What are you doing to develop? Um, curiosity and innovation, um, they look at me quite blankly. Mm. And and we need to find a way that the sort of skills that we know employers value and we know are of value to all individuals, we need to find a way to actually embed that in the DNA of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we can begin to do that more than we see it today, I think that's going to give us you know s- some real benefits over longer term.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I it's a recurrent theme in in conversations that I'm having with with lots of business leaders in your position. Um partly because I'm asking the question about employability <laughs> skills, so slightly leading yes. question. Um but the th- you've touched on it. There is a need for a common language, a common framework. Yeah. Um and it doesn't seem beyond the wit of man to to start somewhere. And then most employers will be able to map yep. their competencies, their particular frameworks to that. Yes. But all of a sudden, it creates a common language that teachers, young people, and indeed parents can understand. Yes. And it becomes part of the
1: vernacular of school. Yeah, very much so. Um, um, I mean, going back, I mean, your you comments about sort of, you know, Matthew Taylor a, a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the good things that came out of Matthew's report was this construct of let's create a common spine of skills that we all recognize and we can all engage in. Um, But you know, (laughs) whether you talk about 21st century skills, essential skills, life skills, I think the fact that we've probably created 101 different ways to describe what are fundamentally the same skills is perhaps the problem and you know, we, as an organisation, uh, you know, working with RSA around their Learning Cities initiative, you know, and part of that. What, what is that? So, Learning Cities initiative is 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 being taken from a model in in the US, um, which is where you, you create the environment in a city, um, where employers, um, where um, local council government, um, where education institutions, you know, where community-based institutions can all begin to participate and create a culture of learning. Um, And whether that learning is formal or informal, um, it is still learning. Mm. And to do that in a way that that is also recognized against some common criteria. So coming back to this common spine, you know, if you're looking for leadership, there are many, many different ways we can determine whether someone has leadership skills and is evidenced. It doesn't mean that you have to be a manager of a PL and have 20 people reporting to you. It can be developed in a number of different ways. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at how we can create a set of uh, digital badges um, that have a common spine to them, that recognize core skills, that employers will recognize and value, that Education institutions will recognise and value, and of course, importantly, the individual will recognise and value. Um, you know, and we're looking at how we do that in places like Brighton and Plymouth, there's a couple of test cases. But I think that's a great initiative, mm. and you know, it's important we get business behind movements like that. Yeah,
0: I think there's the appetite there, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Chris, uh, I, I there's I could keep talking and talking, asking, asking you more and more questions. Um, but I, I just yeah, before we close, I, I was kind of interested in. Um, uh, from a personal perspective, um, heroes or, or, or people that have inspired you, it doesn't have to be people you've worked with, but a- any spring to mind? Uh,
1: well, you know, um, I might be being a bit dull and boring. Um, it's my father. Um, you know, he was a man who set, ai suppose, a, a philosophy in life about work. Um, and he was certainly sort of my inspiration around the sort of individual I wanted to be in the workplace, mm. um, the sort of leader that I wanted to be, mm. um, and his whole sort of you know uh, mantra of, you know, you get up in the morning, and no matter how bad your day was before, you go back to work and you try and do something better, um, and that's what I try and do here. Um, so, so, so it's dad. Yeah, no, that's that's far from dull and boring. That's that's <laughs> that's,
0: a, that's very humbling. Uh, and in terms of um, passions, interests outside of City and Gills Group, there's sort of this whole, you know, work-life balance? Work-life balance.
1: Um, well, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I sort of live just on the borders of, of the Cotswolds. Um, so I have three wonderful um, sort of dogs that I can take on very long walks uh, my wife and I both enjoy. We, we love um, eating out in some fantastic sort of country pubs uh, around us. Very nice part of the um, world. And, you know, I've got two wonderful kids. I've got a 25 year old daughter who's about to qualify as a vet. And my son has just embarked on a career as as a filmmaker. Um, And it's fantastic to see them follow their dream and their passion and helping them do that is part of what I think I've got to do. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you very much.
0: I've really enjoyed our conversation. Jim, pleasure. Thank you. Chris will be joining us at the Royal Geographical Society in London on the 22nd of March for this year's Future Talent Conference, where he'll be joining a panel of business leaders to discuss the importance of digital inclusion. With the rapid change that technology is bringing to the workplace and society, it's important that nobody gets left behind. We're asking you to provide your support by sharing your stories about what you're doing to upskill your employees and make your workplace digitally inclusive. Email Changeboard's Editor-in-Chief, Mary Appleton, at maryatchangeboard.com to register your interest. Thanks for listening. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast really soon.